John 16, verse 4. I'm going to start with the second half of verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. When he comes, those words show up twice right in that section that I just read. And, and if you peek down at your sermon notes, you'll notice that there's nothing really creative in there this time in terms of an outline. All those headings come right out of the text. The text kind of outlines itself very nicely in this passage. When he comes... We, we typically use those words in our own lives when we're looking ahead to someone's arrival. We're planning ahead to what's going to happen once that person arrives. What will it be like when he gets there or when she gets there? But we might also be asking what that person will be like and what will happen when he comes. What will he or she do? We try to prepare ourselves for that arrival. It might be the arrival into your workplace of a new boss or maybe a new employer. Sometimes those expectations can be a little bit idealistic. We might expect that it will make things easier for us when he or she comes. Or maybe um, they'll make things more proficient in the company. When he comes or when she comes, they'll get this done or they'll get that accomplished. Things will be so much better. Things might be so much more proficient. And sometimes that works out that way. Sometimes we might set ourselves up also for disappointment because after all, no one is perfect. No one is the be-all and end-all. Eventually that person will disappoint. He or she will not be all that we expected. Maybe they will be proficient in that one area that was lacking, but pretty soon a deficiency is going to pop up in another area. And that's just the nature of people. Well, here in John 16, it's Jesus that's preparing his 11 disciples for someone's arrival. He's preparing them and he's encouraging them and he's comforting them because he was announcing that he is about to go away, which is somewhat of, a, of his cryptic way of saying that he's about to die. And yet, that he also will be raised from death, and that he'll be exalted to the right hand of the Father. And the disciples, for their part, are starting to now understand the die part, 
But whatever little it is that they understand, it's obvious that Jesus is announcing that he wouldn't be with them any longer in the same way that he had been with them for the last three years that they'd been together, almost 24-7 during those three years. That experience was about to end. And the disciples are quite naturally agitated, confused, sad, troubled. Yet here in John 13 and 14 and 15 and 16, those four chapters, which we're almost at the end of now, Jesus has been trying to encourage them that they will come to a point when they understand that everything that's about to happen, which they see as troubling right now, is all part of God's perfect plan. And that God's perfect plan is to his glory, but also for their good. Even though they don't see it now, what's about to happen is for their good. And that's where we've been for the last couple of months as we've looked at these amazing last words of Jesus. Almost his last will and testament to his disciples, to his own tight circle of friends on the very night, even hours just before he was about to be arrested that very same night, early hours of the morning. And here, Jesus just announces straight up there in verse 7 that even though sorrow has filled their hearts, he says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Why? How, how can this possibly be to their advantage? Well, he answers them, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Who? The helper. Well, who's that? Back in chapter 14, verse 26, it says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, that's his identity, whom the Father will send in my name. And so the advantage of Jesus going away to his death and to his resurrection, to his exaltation for the disciples, the advantage for the disciples and for every follower of Jesus is that the Helper will come to you. And then Jesus launches into this explanation of what will happen when this helper, this Holy Spirit, comes? And contrary to any expectation that we put into any kind of human help that might be coming, this helper, this Spirit of God, sent from God the Father and God the Son, will not fail. He will never disappoint. He is in no way deficient because he is very God himself. So before I get into these words that I just read and and explain some of what's going on here, I just want to let you know that we're going to take a bit of a detour here from this point, from the Gospel of John, and use this passage to launch us into a series on the person of the Holy Spirit. I've been promising this for a couple of weeks now, and this is when it's going to start. As elders in our church, we thought it this would be helpful for our church to try to understand more about who this person, this, this Holy Spirit is. We, we felt that we need to grow in our knowledge of God the Spirit. Who is this helper? Who is this Holy Spirit? We need to know this. You need to know this if you're a Christian because it's God the Holy Spirit that's doing the greatest thing that is happening in your life right now. It is God the Holy Spirit that is at work in your life right now, conforming you into the image of Jesus. He is right now making you holy. He is setting you apart from the world. You need to know the work of the Holy Spirit. I've been wanting to do a series like this for a while now, and it's been spurred on, for me at least, by two things 
that have that I've come across in my life. One is a statement I heard from a, pa- a preacher at a conference over six years ago now, and he said this. He said, the most ignored, the most misrepresented, the most insulted, the most dishonored person in the Godhead in our present age of the church is the Holy Spirit. Most ignored, most rep- misrepresented, most insulted, most dishonored person in the Godhead is the Holy Spirit. And I've thought about that comment for a while. And I've come to see that he's right on in his assessment. The person of God, the Father could get mocked. We mock God sometimes. We hear that in, you know, when we go about the way. We talk to other people. The name of Jesus, that's trivialized. But at least in the church, we try to honor the Father and we try to exalt the Son. But when it comes to God, the Holy Spirit... All manner of things go on today, even in the evangelical church, in the name of the Holy Spirit that are, at best, bizarre, and at worst, blasphemous. So that was one thing that spurred me on to want to look at this. The other is a question I get once in a while. Um, Periodically, people will will stop by at our church or or, or phone and, and inquire about the nature of our church. And they ask about a few things. You know, some of our programs, some of our ministries to youth or to seniors or other things. But the one question I hear repeated most often is this. It's the one I put at the beginning of your sermon notes. Does this church believe in the Holy Spirit? Does this church believe in the Holy Spirit? At first, that question kind of caught me off guard. Why would someone ask that? Of course we believe in the Holy Spirit. But now I've heard this enough that I know what they mean by that question. They usually want to know about how we experience the Holy Spirit or how the Spirit manifests himself in our church. Just a little further questioning, that'll, that'll come out. And without exception, once we keep talking, those questioners wonder if we believe in the kind of experience of the Holy Spirit that includes what we might call ecstatic manifestations of the Holy Spirit, things that are usually associated with the charismatic movement. So I don't want to say a whole lot more about that right now, other than to say that, that this quote from that pastor at a conference a number of years ago, on the one hand, together with that question from people looking for a church, those things made me think that it's important that you know what the Bible says about the role of God, the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do? What does, most importantly, what does the Bible tell us who he is and what he does? And so Pastor Andrew and myself will look at that for a number of weeks, starting today and picking up again, again in two weeks. Next week, Trevor uh, Douglas will be here, but we'll pick it up again in two weeks. And we'll start to talk about what actually happened in the beginning of the book of Acts. And as we'll look at that, that's often a controversial passage, with, uh, which is what Jesus really is looking ahead to here in in John 16, this coming of the Spirit. We'll look at what it means to be filled with the Spirit. We'll look at what that means for our church. We'll look at what that means for families and for our work. That's what Ephesians 4 and 5 is all about. We'll think together about the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. And we'll look at the Holy Spirit's role in our salvation and in our sanctification which is really what being conformed into the image of Jesus is, our sanctification, what is happening right now, what the work of Christ is in the life of a believer now. 
So I just want to say, in answer to that question, does this church believe in the Holy Spirit? I want you to know, yes, we do believe in the Holy Spirit. You can take that to, to the bank. A hundred times, yes. If anyone ever asks you that question about our church, you can answer that without hesitation. Yes, yes, we do. We believe the Holy Spirit is indispensable to our individual Christian lives. We believe the Holy Spirit is essential to our church. But because of that first quote, that the most ignored, most misrepresented, most insulted, most dishonored person in the Godhead is the Holy Spirit, we want to try to equip you to know why you can say, yes, we believe in the Holy Spirit. But this series is not just about giving you information. This is way more than just giving you the tools to be able to answer questions. We want to remind you about the the preciousness and, like I said, the indispensability of the Holy Spirit for your life. Our goal is that you would grow in your love for God the Spirit and for your worship of God the Holy Spirit right alongside your worship of God the Father and God the Son. So with all that as introduction, with what's coming in the next couple of months, Lord willing, let's go back now to John 16. Why is it to the advantage of these sorrow-filled disciples that Jesus go away? In short, he says in verse 7, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Might be worth it real quick because... Jesus sort of sets up this possibility before we expand on these things in the weeks to come to consider all the things we know would be true had the Helper not come. If Jesus had not sent the Helper, the verses that follow would not be true. There would be no conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. There would be no one to guide us into all truth. For that matter, we wouldn't even have a written record of the truth. There'd be no Bible. There'd be no one to remind us of Jesus' words. And going past John 16, if we were not filled by the Spirit, which, like I said, we'll read about in Ephesians 4 and 5, there would always be division in the church. There would never be unity in the church. Our worship would be self-centered. Our marriages would be self-serving. Our homes would be filled with rebellion. Our work would have no authority structure. There would be no uh, special, unique Gifts that contribute to the good of the church, 1 Corinthians 12. Everyone would just have talents that would serve to draw attention to themselves. As individuals, Galatians 5, we would still be marked by the deeds of the flesh rather than the fruit of the Spirit. And worst of all, we would have no way to grow in holiness. In fact, we would be dead in our sins with no regenerating power to expose our sin or to awaken our faith or to lead us to repentance. If I do not go away, Jesus says, the helper would not come to you. And that would be disastrous. But thankfully, we need not speculate. Jesus did go away, and he did send the helper to you. So just think again of this scene. These 11 disciples loved Jesus. They had left their families. They had left their livelihoods to follow Jesus. Jesus, during that time, had provided for them. He had taught them. He had served them. He had loved them. You can see that last part, especially in John 13, as he washes the disciples' feet. 
But Jesus knew all along that his going away was right around the corner. He was just about to, to finish the mission for which he was sent by the Father, culminating with, in, his, in his death instead of sinners. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And in his resurrection from the dead, and in his going to the Father. And so, verse 5, I am going to him who sent me. It's interesting, isn't it? God sent Jesus, going to him who sent me, and now Jesus promises to send the helper. Or another way of saying that is, God sent God, and now God promises to send God. God the Father sent God the Son, and now God the Son is sending God the Spirit. Here's the point. You will never be without God. This is why Jesus wants to take the disciples from sorrow has filled your heart to it is your, to your advantage that I go away. God is always there. God is not going away. He will never go away. The Father sent his Son to dwell among us. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And now the Son goes to the Father. He sends God the Spirit. I will send him to you. To you. He is the God who is there. He will never leave you or forsake you. Brother and sister Christian, God is with you always. When you feel alone, even when you are alone, you are not alone. You have company. You have not only company in one person that's there, you have the company of the threefold presence of the fullness of God. God is with you, Jesus is with you, with you, and because Jesus goes away, now you also have the Spirit with you. That can be comforting, that could be threatening, right? Take that both ways. God is always with us. He always knows what we're doing, but he's always there to comfort us. And then Jesus starts to tell them about what the Holy Spirit has been sent to do. The Father sent the Son we learn to seek and to save the lost. But why does the Son send the Spirit? Well, we see two reasons, or, or you might call them two tasks or two assignments, given by the Son to the Spirit here in these verses. There's more, and we'll look at those, but here's the two in this section. Task number one, verses 8 to 11. When he comes, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is, this world is judged. And so we have the summary here in verse 8, and the explanation in verses 9 to 11. So one of the things that the Holy Spirit does when he comes, one of his tasks when he comes, is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. Now that's a kind of word we use in court. The Spirit does the accusing, he does the prosecuting, and he brings down the verdict, the conviction of guilt. That's the way the word conviction is being used here. The world here is, is, is wider than just uh, the way we think of the ungodly versus the godly. Uh, you know, saints versus sinners, or, or, or the, 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 the godly versus the world. It's, it's more than just that here. This is talking about the world in, in, in terms of 
the whole world. We were all ungodly. And that's the sense here. It means that the Spirit convicts everyone who is not God. Every person in the whole world who needs to repent. Every person in the whole world is guilty and in need of saving. That's the role of the helper. So let's walk, and we're going to walk at a really quick pace, I know what time it is, through all three of these areas of the convicting work of the helper, the Holy Spirit. First, he's going to convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe me. So, so this is the root of sin, right? That they, that they don't believe in God the Son, the root of people's guilt. Apart from the conviction of the Spirit, we would never believe in Jesus. We would never believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So yes, people are guilty for not keeping God's laws, but at root, they do not entrust themselves to believe in the one who did keep God's laws perfectly. That's the connection. They refuse to see their need of Jesus. They justify themselves. They certainly do not need Jesus to justify them, nor anyone else. Unless, that is, the Spirit does the work of conviction to such a degree that people recognize their sin and they recognize their utter helplessness to get into a right standing with holy God. He'll convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe me. And that brings us to number two. He'll convict the world concerning righteousness because I'm going to the Father. Now, that, when I first read that, sounds a little weird. Sin, yes, we can understand that. He wants to convict the world concerning sin. But why would we need to be convicted concerning righteousness? Well, precisely because we have none. Even though we always drift toward thinking we do. Maybe we do the scale thing, right? Where, where surely our, our good things um, outweigh our, our bad things. I guess it would be like this. <laughs> In terms of our righteousness. Our right ways um, outweigh our wrong ways. Friends, we need to be convicted concerning our righteousness, or what at least we come sometimes to wrongly think is our righteousness. We need to be convicted that all our righteousness, as Isaiah says, is like filthy rags, a polluted garment in God's eyes. And what Isaiah saw as filthy rags, Paul came to see as rubbish. In Philippians 3, or Proverbs 21, verse 2, every, every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs, interesting that he uses the scale word there, but the Lord weighs the heart. Haughty eyes and a proud heart are sin. It's as simple as that. We need to be convicted that while our own righteousness can never cut it in God's just scales, we can have the righteousness of another Namely, the perfectly righteous Son, who in his love would die in our place. Praise God that the Spirit has convicted us, who are believers, that righteousness doesn't depend on our self-effort, but on Jesus' perfect obedience, on his work on our behalf, and in his death on the cross. That's where we need to put our trust. That's where we need to be convicted of. Romans 3, verse 20 says, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God 
through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Our righteousness will never cut it in God's eyes. But when we put our trust in Jesus' perfect righteousness, we will be saved. It's because Jesus went to the Father that we have access to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Finally, we need the Holy Spirit to convict us concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Here's, the, here's what Jesus is thinking as he's saying this. The ruler of the world is Satan, and Jesus' is thinking here is that if the ruler of the world, who is um, the, the greatest purveyor of evil in the whole world, has been consigned to judgment and eventual destruction, then we need the convicting work of the Spirit so that we see that God will judge us because of our sin. That's the sequence here. Now, don't you agree that we need this ministry of the Spirit? One of the reasons people persist in their sin is, and, and in their unbelief is that judgment seems remote. Judgment seems far away. Some people would say that that's, this threat of judgment is an idle threat because we just don't experience that judgment. It's a God in his kindness is delayed in his judgment. But judgment is real. And judgment is imminent. And so we ought to praise the Holy Spirit for convicting us concerning judgment and for helping us see that Jesus already took our condemnation, our judgment upon himself. As Romans 8 says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is a gracious and kind work. It's because of the gracious work of the Spirit that we look to Jesus and we find in him one who was without sin, one who is completely righteous, and one who took upon himself the judgment of God against sin. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. That brings us to task number two. Verse 12. I, will, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he'll declare to you the things that are to come. He'll glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So here we see that the Spirit not only does the work of convicting the world, he also guides us into truth. Does the world of convic- work of conviction, but he also does the work of revelation. And what does he reveal? He reveals the meaning of all of who Jesus is. Just note here the action words that are attributed to the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit, uh, we might say, what does the Holy Spirit busy himself with? Well, he guides, beginning of verse 13. He speaks and declares, which is in verse 13, 14, and 15, and he glorifies Jesus. And all of it is tied to the truth. You might not often think of the Holy Spirit as one who speaks. After all, he is a spirit. How does the spirit speak? Answer, he speaks through what we now know as the New Testament. He speaks, the Holy Spirit speaks through what we now know as the New Testament. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, I still have many things to say to you. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And it's all connected to Jesus. He will declare what is mine. 
And so we can thank the Holy Spirit, we can praise the Holy Spirit for allowing us to have the record of Jesus' life. And as these 11 disciples began to preach and to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, as he gave his word about Jesus to them, the, the Spirit took their preaching about Jesus and formed it into words, formed it into a book. And the Holy Spirit collected those words into the 27 books that make up the New Testament. He guided those disciples into the truth. And notice, he, did, he guided them into all the truth. So at that time when Jesus is speaking, there was still more revelation to come. But with the New Testament, with these declarations about Jesus, we would have all the truth. The Holy Spirit would fill out the revelation about Jesus, and then it was over. We don't need any further revelation. We are not to add, the Bible warns us, to what the Spirit has already revealed to us about Jesus. So, this should draw us to be thankful for the fact that Jesus died. And one of the many reasons we can be thankful, one of the many reasons that you can be thankful is that Jesus dying and being raised and being exalted at the right hand of God, where he is right now, is, one of the advantages, is that the Holy Spirit came and began his work and his activity and his ministry. A ministry that continues to this day as he lives in us who believe. Who, who believe. Us who have received the spirit of adoption. Us who are the children of God. We are a church that believes and that rejoices in the Holy Spirit. And we do more than believe in the Holy Spirit. We are 100% dependent on the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit's work, we would have never been convicted of sin or righteousness or judgment. And with the Holy Spirit's work, we would not know about our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We would be aimless. We'd be out without the written word. We'd be out without a guide. But as it is, in the wisdom of God, the Holy Spirit took everything that Jesus did and he declared it to us and he left it with us. And he uses it to teach us. He uses, us, uses it to keep us in the faith. He uses us the, the word to help us know the truth. And most of all, he uses the word to keep Christ always in front of us and in behind us and over us and underneath us and in us. We praise God for the Holy Spirit. Our Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the one who was born of a virgin the one who was crucified, the one who was buried, the one who was raised, the one who was exalted, the one who is seated at your right hand, who will come to judge the living and the dead. And we thank you for the helper, the comforter, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. We thank you that he brought to us the conviction that we so desperately needed conviction that led us to turn from our sins conviction that led us to treasure Christ above all things we pray father that your spirit might continue to do that work in the world so that others might see Christ and we thank you that the spirit of truth guides us into all truth and that through the spirit we have the precious 
treasure, this deposit that is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we look forward to what you will teach us in the weeks to come about how we need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, chiefly so that we would become holy and conform to the image of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and all peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen.